My name is Athena Kaplenu. I'm a stand-up comedian, podcaster and writer and a parent, which is great, but children can't talk and I need conversation. So every now and again, I invite a friend around to keep my company. Today, I've got someone who is an honour to be sitting <laughs> um, opposite. Um, I'm amazed he even bothered to come around and talk to me. He even came bearing gifts, which we're going to talk about later. Today, keeping my company is the fantastic Alex Wheatle. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, um, it's a pleasure to be here. And to be honest, it was nice getting out of the house. It I mean, was nice getting out of the house. Well, yeah, because um, my wife expects me to decorate 24-7. So you gave me a perfect excuse to come down to London. Are you good at DOI? No. No, you're not. No, so I find it hard work. Your wife's expectations are going to be seriously not met. Probably not. What's the worst DIY disaster that you've had? In our first flat, I hang up the wallpaper upside down. <laughs> but we left it. How did you know? Was it like a, wasn't something obviously upside down, like a person with feet in the air? Um, I wanted to do it in a rush, basically a day. Okay. You know, so um, unfortunately she came home and, ah! <laughs> but we left it. We thought, it's kind of kinky looking or cool or whatever. Right, so, yeah, like avant-garde. Yeah. Okay. You know, like something the French might do. Or... <laughs> so that doesn't sound too bad. I thought you were going to say, because I watched Flood in my kitchen. Right. Um, choose a true story. I once unplugged a washing machine because it was blocked or something. Like you know, pipes get blocked. Or, I can't remember why I did it, but I unplugged it and I had to put it back in again. But I forgot to plug the outlet pipe back in. Oh. So then I put a wash on, um, and then I flooded my kitchen. Um, and oh, the, how the expensive was that? Well, that, it, my my flat was fine. It was a downstairs flat that uh, that got um, a bit of water damage, but in the end, it was fine. It a was, bit. A little bit of what, well, as it happens, it got properly water damaged. My downstairs flat, this is a boring story, but I, ha- I had this flat where I got these mad builders in and they rewired, they re- they did the water supply wrong, so the toilet flushed with hot water. What? Well, right, which is ridiculous. That could but- be unfortunate if you want a, um, a B day kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, you burn, burn your batty. So for ages, I was like, well, I guess my toilet's just going to be really clean, but it turns out. The components for toilets aren't designed for hot water. So it gradually melted some of the kind of components and drip by drip, it was Ooh. leaking into the downstairs flat. It and sounds very... It was horrendous. Messy. It was horrendous. So, and that's the worst kind of leak, the kind of like slow, drippy leak. Anyway, when, when my downstairs flat's ceiling finally caved in and it actually caved in, what I saw was just, I've never, I've never been so ashamed. And it wasn't my fault, but it was, it was horrible. It was the worst nightmare. And he was so good about it. I, I can't match that though. Okay, go on. <laughs> my first trip to Jamaica and my dad took me to my uncle's place way out in the countryside. And I wanted to use a toilet and I never used a pit toilet in my life before. And it was like a little hut. So everyone knows it's a pit latrine, basically a hole in the ground. Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's yeah. a hole in the ground. What, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. I thought, oh, okay, they've got outside toilet, cool. You know, I'm used to outside toilets in this country and, you know, people used to have them in their back gardens and so on. So I thought it was something like that. No, it's just a hole in the ground, a very deep hole in the ground. All I saw was just very strange flies and other <laughs> insects that I cannot describe, just hovering over it. And I thought... Oh my God, I have to take off my, you know, underwear and uh, kind of crouch over that thing while all these things are kind of snapping away at your skin. <laughs> and the smell, of feel the smell, oh my God. No, that was my first, so, oh, that was awful. Okay, yeah, so you probably uh, weed into a toilet with hot water. 
probably not mm. to complain about complain about too much. So you're not that good at DIY no. or using picture trees, but you're quite good at writing. Yeah, I hope so. You're quite you're quite good at writing. And can we talk about your new book that's coming out next year? Is oh, Kamosha. Um, Kamosha of the Caribbean. Kamosha of the Caribbean. Um, I wasn't a big fan of those um, Pirates of the Caribbean movies with Orlando Bloom and uh, who's the other guy? Johnny Depp. Yeah. And was it Keira Knightley? They were okay, but I thought, you know what? I really like to see um, a black female heroine kick ass. And so I created Kimosha. She gets sold into, um, well, she's um, living life on a plantation, but she gets sold into the most notorious pirate haven in the Caribbean, Port Royal, Jamaica. And not many people have written about that period. Because Port Royal at the time was probably one of the richest places on earth. They made heaps of money because you had Captain Morgan and others uh, sailing to Panama and looting those cities and bringing back gold and so on. So I thought, I'm going to put Kamoshi in the middle of that. You know, she's going to try to raise money to free her young brother who's still on the plantation. So, folks, that's coming out next year, I believe, February 2022. So, and my daughter's going to be dressed as commotion on World Book Day. This is official. Okay, yeah. so that, that's what I'm excited about. What The next World Book Day, she's getting dressed up as her. I haven't even yeah. read the book yet, but I've got a pre-publication copy. I'm very excited to have. read it. I'm, I'm thrilled to read it. I wanna, it's interesting when you talk about what you, what you said about there are things that just aren't spoken about or yeah. stories that aren't told a lot of, you know, enslaved societies, mostly because we couldn't read or write. So mm-hmm. why would you record them? It's one of the reasons I love Marlon James, because I think the way we can record this history is to kind of understand as much as we can and write about, write novels, yeah. because we don't have the documents, but we have an idea of what happened. Is that something that was on your mind when you're, even though it's young adult fiction and it is yeah. fiction, did you think you're also documenting something important? When I you're believe writing? so. Um, I believe that all of our lives are important and we have to document those lives. We can't just document a certain society's um, their lived uh, experience or whatever. You know, what about our lived experience? Yeah. And so I try to, in all my work, everything I've done, even when I was a DJ, I tried to, to relate my experience and the people around me, what their lives were like. And so, um, you know, playing sound systems from 16, 17 one of my first lyrics was about the complaint neighbour knocking on your doors or gates at um, 2 2 a.m. in the morning. And so um, I would get back into my little hostel, in my little room, and say, the complaint neighbour, and, and so on, you know? So again, I'm documenting our experience or how we lived our lives, and I've, I haven't really changed in, really in that aspect. When you were on the sound systems and doing, uh, being a DJ and stuff, did you ever imagine you'd be a novelist? Oh, Lord, no. Lord, no. I wanted to be the next Bob Marley, man. <laughs> you know, um, I wanted to um, look out to see 30,000, 40,000 people in the audience, me strumming guitar, but the only thing, um, I could write lyrics, but I could never, I was rubbish at melody. Right. And so where the other DJs, people like Tipper Irie, Smiley Culture, Asher Senator, the whole Saxon crew, um, maybe you're a bit too young to remember them, but um, they were incredible, you know, um, and they were lyrical as well, and they had melody, that's one thing I found was melody, I had the words and lyrics, but no melody, so that's why I probably never progressed in that field. But you found you're, you were good at, yes. and, you, and you led into that. And um, it kind of worked to my favour a little bit, because um, with those guys, it would take, uh, they could write a lyric in one night, I can never do that. 
I could never go to the dance and do freelance stuff. That wasn't me. I had to um, write maybe four lines, come back the next night and write another uh, four lines until maybe two weeks later, it might, I might create something that was worth kind of um, chatting to the crowd. That was my development kind of thing. So you were more methodical? Yes, I was. Yeah, and, and do, you so have, do you have the same it, approach to writing books? Absolutely. I, I have the same discipline. I get up early in the morning and I create. You know, just like I did when I was 15, 16, 17. So I've kept that. So that was a blessing. When you stopped making music, was it a clean break or did you always keep your hand in it? I kept my hand in it. I kind of um, went to the uh, poetry jam scene. In Brixton, it was thriving. There used to be this place underneath the arches near Marks and Spencer, I believe. And it was run by an incredible woman called Claudette Douglas. And she would decorate um, these arches under the railway with uh, uh, bedsheets and paint on them, you know, some lovely images of African culture and Caribbean culture. And she had a little stage there. And that is where I took my steps to, um, you know, being a, a so-called poet. Or, right. But I used to find it nerve-wracking, though, because I'm, I was always used to a, a, a heaving crowd to perform to and the music. But it was quiet and people were um, sipping their expensive coffees and, and so on, you know, or their mixed mineral juices and stuff like that, so, you know. But um, it served me well because it built up my confidence. Yeah. Because I think sometimes I would um, use being a DJ to kind of deflect from the, um, the trauma that I had. Um, but um, being a poet, I could finally... Um, confront my past, my trauma, my life at a children's home and so forth. So in that way, it was very good for me. We spoke a little bit before the podcast about trauma and you mentioned yeah. that comedians have a lot of trauma. And I was yeah. like, nah, not me, not me. <laughs> my comedy is about politics. Uh, but there's always, I think whenever you create art, you, a lot yeah. of it comes from the personal. Yeah. Do you think that creating art is, is therapy regardless whether you realise it or not? Um, not for everybody, I, uh, I imagine, but for me, it definitely was. Yeah. I think I needed to, um, to look within myself and try to express myself because for so many years, especially my young years, my teenage years, I had all this incredible anger inside of me that I carried with me wherever I went. Yeah. And sometimes when I was a kid at school, I would get into fights and I used to stay up at night thinking, why did I fight that guy? There seemed to be no reason or rhyme to it why I would suddenly lose my temper. But um, when I look back now, I was probably looking for some kind of outlet to vent my fury yeah. because I would have endless social workers and they would come and see me. Alex, you're okay? How you doing? You know, and I'd never reveal what's occurring in the children's home or what my lived experience actually was. I'd never revealed it because I wouldn't trust them. So I, I definitely a lack of trust for any authority figure. And so I think in my teenage years, that all come to a boiling point, you know, where I almost had a breakdown when I, I finally went to prison in 1981, where it all came out, where at last I, could, I felt I could trust somebody and to just offload my trauma, if you like. I think that's really interesting that you found solace in... Yeah. in uh, in prison, which is not yeah, normally weird. the story for young black men. Yeah. Um, do you do a lot of work with prisons at the moment? I used to. I don't have too much time to do it now, but um, when I was first published, um, me and Courtney Newland 
in fact. Um, I started my prison work with him. I remember we went out to um, Wormwood Scrubs and we did an incredible session there and spoke to a lot of men there. And that's how it all started. And then from that, I would go to um, young offenders institutions. I've, I must have attended most prisons in the country, I'd imagine. Yeah. Even those far off in some distant aisle. Like I think there's a couple of prisons on the Isle of Sheppey that I once attended. Yeah, there's one in Portland, yeah, uh, in Do- in Dorset, which is sort of infamous as a kind of uh, as a prison. Yeah. It's supposed to be like super harsh there. Yeah, and I went to the one near Charlton. What's it called? Oh, um, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. It's high security, and the one up in York. Wow. Okay. And um, it really saddens me when I meet a lot of these men, and um, they, they can be so creative. You know, very creative. They. If they were, you know, went down another road, who knows what they could um, have made of their lives. I think a lot of it is opportunity too. Yeah. So I always talk about my privilege of being a performer. Like, if you want to be a stand-up comedian and you live in London, you can kind of perform anywhere. There's open mic nights anywhere. Um, yeah. If you're fairly middle class, you can conceive it as a career. Mm. Whereas if you're if you're not, maybe you can't conceive being a creative as, as a career. Mm. Then I, when I started, I started quite late. So I already had a job, so I could subsidise my comedy career mm-hmm. with like the decent job that I had. But if you don't have these things, it's not an yeah. option. And creativity isn't seen as something valuable. Um, because and also there's a get rich quick mentality that some mm. communities have which is not what happens when you're creative so you see the creatives working and they're really rich but you can't get that to that because it takes so long so it doesn't mm. surprise me that there's lots of untapped creative potential because they're not given the opportunity they're not given the incentive yeah it, I guess when I was young in Brixton the only guys who seemed to have money were the sound system guys or if you sold weed mm. that was it nobody else you know and so um i love the sound system uh environment and you know the spaces that it offered for creatives and uh, i really loved the djs and the owners and all that whole kind of um culture and that's that's the that's the road i decided to take and i still don't see myself as any different from what i was when i was um 16 17 you know being a creative um, basically, my um, books are just longer lyrics. Longer really. lyrics. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, longer lyrics. So when did you write your first book? How old were you when you wrote your first book? Um, Bricks and Rock came about uh, late 20s. Late 20s. Late 20s. And I was very naive. I thought that um, if I wrote a book, I'd be a millionaire once it was published. I really believed that. And um, I had no idea how to go about it. So basically, I, I started just like I start any of my poetry or lyrics I had a pen and a notepad that was it and when I completed the first draft I very happily whistled on my way to one of the um, the top literary agencies in London it was near Chelsea Harbour I cannot remember the address but I remember going to Chelsea Harbour I thought yeah Chelsea Harbour man this is going to be so good you know I'm going to buy a B&W at the end of this <laughs> I'm going to have my yacht and all them kind of things you know and um, when I got to the reception and uh, and the lady at the reception told me that, do I have a type version? I was mortified. So thought, you wrote the whole book out? Yes. On notepads? Okay. Yeah, in, by longhand. And she said, I have to type it double space. I said, are you kidding me? I mean, and in fact, the bricks and hustler came out of me because I said, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. <laughs> if you type it up for me, I'll give you a touch. I'll give you, say, 15%. Maybe, you know, if you, maybe if that can't work, maybe 20 but, but the advance will have to be big. You know what I'm saying? Half a mil. <laughs> but 
but she wasn't kind of feeding that and I had to go home and kind of, ah, I've got to learn to type. And so, I, in fact, when I got home, I threw the manuscript under my bed and didn't think anything of it until I met another one of my hustler friends and he was like, the, um, he was like one of um, those, uh, a Del Boy kind of character. A Brits and Delboy. Alex, man. Alex, man. Yeah. I heard that you want to write, man. Yeah, man. You want to write? I've got a typewriter, man. Trust me. Ten pound, ten pound. You want to see the instruction book, man? It tick, man. It tick. You know? <laughs> That's how you used to chat. And um, I went to his house. And I think, he, I think he stole it from his granny or something. <laughs> you know? So, and I don't think the P worked. If I remember rightly, I don't think the P worked. Every time I, <laughs> I type P, where's the P? So it's Lantane, not Plantane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I, I, I typed it up and um, I, I, I sent it off again. And I got, how many rejections did I get? Almost 30, I believe. I think 28, 29. But I was one of those mad believers. And um, I was one of those people that um, maybe too confident. Because I used to phone him up. What do you mean? You you know you don't want to publish it. What are you talking about, man? The book's bad. <laughs> no, like the but book's bad. Why would you sell, sell us a bad book? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I just could not believe that nobody wanted to publish it. So I, I thought they were all idiots. Yeah. And I think that kind of crazy um, ignorance, if you like, that got me through. I wasn't like, oh no, I didn't like my book, man. <laughs> you know, I was never like that. I'm always confident that one day Bricks and Rock will be published. And that's really interesting because publishing is notoriously white mm -hmm. and notoriously undiverse. Yeah. So did it ever did you ever think to yourself, I'm entering a world that is where that I'm normally that people like me are normally excluded from? Or did you just think, I'm just gonna do this? Um, a bit of half and half. And I guess I was encouraged by the likes of um someone like Bob Marley for you know one of my idols. I mean, he went into um, a white world, didn't he? When uh, Chris Blackwell um, acquired him for Island Records. Yeah. And he had to go to um, places like Cornwall and, you know, places like that to perform to total white audiences. I thought, well, you know what? He entered a white world. Look what he's done. Look what he's achieved. Maybe I can maybe do the same thing. But Bob so, is a musician, okay. you know, and That's, black people yeah. are, are associated with music in the minds of the quote unquote yeah. white mind. So if, they, if you're a black person, sorry, if you're like a white person and you see a black person singing and they're singing reggae, nothing mm. is like alien to you there. It's like, mm. but I mean, I'll tell you a really quick story. A friend of mine uh, was working in Brussels. Okay, she's going somewhere. And she was working with this like 19 year old who was on some kind of Erasmus scheme or some EU. She was white and from Ireland. Incredibly smart, incredibly educated. She had to be a real precocious person to mm. be in the same space as my friend who at that point was in her 30s. She was like a 19 year old or whatever. Really smart. And, talk and they both loved books. They're talking about books. This Irish girl had never heard of Toni Morrison. No. Ever. And she was she is someone who would have described herself as literary and well read. And, mm. stuff. and we, like my friend couldn't believe it. You've never heard of Toni Morrison. That's crazy. And she was like, I haven't. She goes away. A couple of days later, she sees my friend again and she says, oh God, I looked up Toni Morrison. No wonder I hadn't heard of her. You didn't tell me. <laughs> no wonder I hadn't heard of her. You didn't tell me she was black. Oh. Okay, so in her head, black yeah. was a genre, right? So it's like, oh, why would I've heard? Of, I've heard of James Joyce, yeah. you know. I've heard yeah. of, um, I've heard of uh, Yeats. I've heard of Shakespeare. Yeah, that's I've, the, I've heard um, of Alan Bennett. I've heard of all these people. But a black, why would I know a black? The idea that you would just pick up a book written by a black person mm. in her head was bizarre. Yeah, it's a, it's 
that unconscious bias, isn't it? Madly, that, that is yeah. still there today. That you, that's what we have to fight for, basically. Yes. You know, to erase this unconscious bias. Because a lot of white people say, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. But their thought systems. And um, in fact, I read a recent book, my Michael Holden, where he addresses this. Yes. Straight on, you know. He's another, he's another one of my heroes. Yes. And he explains why the taking a knee is necessary and so forth. To remind white people that, you know, you do have a, um, many of them do have an unconscious bias. And it's because of the societies they were raised in to believe that they are superior. And, you know, when you're growing up from a child, you absorb all that, all that information that tells you black people are inferior. That is sort of all of that through fiction, popular culture, film, television, whatever. You know, it, it kind of grows in you like a, like a weed, if you like. And so at the moment, you have to try and uproot that strain of weed so they can be free of that unconscious bias. Also, I mean, this may, not everyone's going to agree with me, but also to let, let people know, it's not your fault. You yeah. grew up with, if, if I was white and I grew up in this world, I'd probably think that way too. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not yeah. immune to, um, to the messages that we get on a daily basis regularly mm. we're being told how to live who's important yeah. who's pretty Absolutely. who's not pretty who's intelligent who's not intelligent gender roles this and that's just advertising yeah. that's just one thing then then you've got education then you've got music then you've got art and culture then you've got yeah, film television i mean even love island i don't watch love island um on the times that i've watched love island i'm thinking you know what um these black women who go on that show they're not valued as much as some of the white women? I don't watch it personally because every time it's on, I understand there's a debate about the attractiveness of black women and who's going to pick the black woman and who's mm. this. And I, it's honestly like, I don't. Th- it's going to sound really, really weird. I don't think as a society we've progressed enough to have a show like Love Island where people can just go on it and yeah. be themselves without like the racial baggage. Yes. I don't think it's a show for black people. I really don't. And I don't know why black people, men and women, and mixed race ones, go on it. Because if you're mixed race, particularly light skin, you just get objectified. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, she's so beautiful, look at her hair. Yeah. If you're a black woman or dark skin, people talk about your hair, people talk about your rejection. People yeah. are, are you, are, do you like her because you like her or because you're trying to use her? Like all these silly little debates. It's like, I don't think this is a space for us. Like society has to catch up with us. Yeah. Um, but this is just from what I see from the conversations on Twitter and stuff like that. I don't, I haven't like, watched it, so. I think we have regress in a way. Mm. You know, when I think about the 70s and the black icons, people like Angela Davis, with her hair, black and proud, you know, that kind of movement. And when I see now, black women in popular culture, not everybody, but a lot of black women in popular culture, you know, with their weave and everything else. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't mind that, but why do they feel that they have to um, look a certain way if they're on television or film or whatever it may be, or even reading the news? You know, I mean, think about how many newsreaders actually have their natural hair, black women newsreaders. Hardly any, maybe one or two at a stretch. Yeah. So black women, I feel, are still uncomfortable in those kind of spaces to be who they really are and to be seen who they really are. Yeah, I think there's, I've got a few thoughts on this. My theory about hair is that 
First of all, I said something to you before the podcast, hair is a racial identifier. In fact, it is the most effective racial identifier, more effective than skin. If you want to know where someone comes from, look at the texture of their hair. So the fact that we do adjust our hair so much is political, whether we like it or not. But that, that doesn't mean we don't have personal choice in the styles that we have, but we have to look at the styles available to us in a political way. So there's no way we can divorce ourselves with that. I do think what's happened with all of us black women and men, because black men adjust their hair too. Okay, I used to know a hairdresser who was a brilliant hairdresser and she had three sons and she wouldn't let their hair grow more than two millimeters. She would consider it messy if their hair was in in any way combable, okay? That is no different to someone who relaxes their daughter's hair three years old, that that rejection of the Afro hair, I don't wanna see this hair on your head, or the shape up culture, you know, like these, this shape up culture is for me no different to weave culture or whatever. You're literally saying, I, I want my hair to be as straight as possible, I don't want my hair to look like an Afro, yeah. I want it to be yeah, phenomenally neat. And that has come to, that has come because of how we define neatness and how we define presentability and stuff. What I do think though, is that it's gone on for so long, it's even lost that now, it's just become, fashion you know it's like i want to do this because my mate's doing it i want to do this because my other friend's doing it and we haven't really thought about the roots of of those decisions because of that rather than rather than me think oh i'd rather people didn't do it i'm just like let's just talk about how we got here let's talk about how we got here and then the more we talk about it the more we will be able to say i think i'd like to do this with my hair today you know like we'd be able to make more decisions that provide a bigger variety of, of looks that we're not getting at the moment. Yeah, maybe. we need to have that conversation. We need to have many conversations about where we are placed in this society, you know, and how um, how natural we should be in those spaces and regards of that, especially black women, because I think there's not, not as much pressure on black men to appear in a certain way, but definitely mm. there is a pressure on black women, whether it's um, in media or TV or even indeed in the office where sometimes they're made to feel uncomfortable because of their choices of maybe wearing natural hair or the way they dress or whatever, or even their rats and so on. And so we need to have that conversation. But on the other side, conversely, we can get quite self-conscious with it. So I happen to know, like, you know, not what happened to know, some of my white friends don't understand why we straighten our hair. They're like, why would you have this beautiful Afro hair and then stick a weave on it or do whatever to it? Um, And in many ways, it's like, we don't necessarily acknowledge that like we've got people who aren't black who love our hair more mm. than we do you know like they would do anything to be able to have a cane row or to be able to get locks or to be able to wear braids or whatever um and yet we don't really acknowledge that and i think sometimes we are we are constantly we're always talking about kind of the negativity through which we are viewed or the negative way in which we're viewed mm. but actually we're viewed in a really positive way and that's why you have appropriation like, yeah. actually, people want to physically have our, our features yeah. in bits. You know, they want our lips and our backsides yeah. and, our, and our hair too. My thing now is that we talk so negatively about the way in which we're viewed and treated. And actually, a lot of it is envy. Mm. You know, people would... A lot of the hatred that has been directed towards African and African-centered people is just pure envy. Yeah, you know? I think so. I mean, when I go to Jamaica, Athena, um, especially to um, the poorest places or Kingston, or even in the countryside... And I see the black women there and the way they carry themselves and the way they walk so tall with their head high. And they they believe they're beautiful women. Mm. And you can see it pouring out of them. 
when they're walking so tall, you know, with their shoulders back and their head forward and up and so on. There's, there's a pride there. There's a sense of pride there. And sometimes I, I, I feel that um, people who are born in those societies, Ghana, Jamaica, wherever it may be, they have a certain sense of their own beauty, where sometimes we don't have that here. Do you think it's because, because you're society surrounded, knocks it down? I was going to say you're surrounded by blackness, so you don't. Yeah. In many ways, you're not a black woman in Jamaica. You're a woman. Yes, you know, exactly. And you don't have to. You don't have to justify. Don't have to prove. Yes. Yeah. Sir. You've, got, you've yeah. got nothing to prove. Whereas here, there's that. There's that weight of being a black woman, quote unquote. So what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It means you could be what you want to be, right? It's just. It, and what does that mean? Like. The, the variety and diversity within blackness means the idea that it should mean something is is, is bizarre. Mm. I think it's changed a lot now. I think if, you, if you're a black woman and you want representation in terms of body shape or hair, um, there's more now than there was when I was a young person. Mm. And I think the world might be... What are you saying? More representation Oh yeah, black beauty? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you never... I can't... When I, I had an afro... Because um, I relaxed my hair when I went to university. I'll tell you a funny story. I went to Ghana with an afro and I came back with straight hair when I was 18 could you imagine went to the motherland and I came back with straight hair so when I was 18 then but and... even in Ghana or Nigeria even oh, yeah, those yeah. Places, do, do black women feel pressured to conform to the white ideal it's, yeah but well, look, let's say Eurocentric it's about the yes absolutely if you watch Nollywood you only have to watch one Nollywood film to see you know to see that the legacy of colonialization mm. is is very much playing out in the way that we we style our hair and what is deemed quote unquote professional and what is deemed quote unquote unprofessional uh, or not even or money what is a class thing too mm. it's it's you you are of a lower class perhaps if you wear your hair a certain way and you're yeah. of a, a better class if you wear it a, diff, a different way so it's not it is not just the british thing that or not just something happens to black people in white society. It happens to black people all over the world. Yeah. And then, it, but then you have to the other side of it. That's an industry. That's someone's job to put That's in right, yeah. It's someone's job to relax hair. So if we stop doing that then there's a, there's a lot of people that wouldn't be very happy with that. And that's what I mean by it's sort of become normalised now. So whilst, yeah. the, the, whilst the roots of it is political, now in 2021, it's just, it's just how we inhabit the world. Um, which is sort of sad and not sad. Sometimes it's nice that people have that choice. But anyway, um, I had an afro. Um, anyway, I relaxed my hair for three years at uni. Came back and I was like, I can't afford this. Where did you go uni? I went Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah, okay. so and I came back and I was like, I can't afford this. <laughs> uh, and and I would go around. I used to go to lots of parties and raves um, in those days. And I, with my kind of back-combed afro. And people would just be like, soul sister and this and that and shouting things at me at the street this is black people so it was even alien it was like mm. seen as a statement and it was never a statement it was just my hair um so what i'm what i'm saying is in when i was a young person young adult it was a statement to have natural hair so, which was meant having natural hair was a hard thing to do because you don't want to make a statement you just wanted to have your hair yeah where white women's hair is never really seen political is it well, exactly. If you're a white woman and you walk out of your house and you haven't done anything to your hair, no one's shouting soul sister at you. Mm. No one's shouting Bridget Bardot yeah. at you or, <laughs> or or a bet from Coronation Street at you. No one's saying that. Mm. They're just letting you get on. And that's the other thing too. That's why it can be quite tiring being black. Like everything you do is political. Tamfina, growing up here, you grew, you grew up here, right? Well, I grew up in East Finchley. 
who did you um who who did you latch onto as a representation that I want to be like her? That's in, really in regards to black women or I, any kind of black representation in popular culture. I have was to, there yeah. anybody who you thought I want to be like her? That's really interesting. She's me, or I, I want to be her. I never I really her. had anyone, but there were. I loved so I loved Eternal, the girl band. I liked rappers, so I like Moni Love. I like Salt and Pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill was a big. Uh, creative um inspiration for me um athletes so like people like denise lewis mm-hmm. um um and i was a bit older but like shelly ann frazier and all the all the jamaican sprinters mm-hmm. um merlin otty <laughs> do you oh. see how random it is though like what yeah. kind of nine-year-old girl is like you know worshiping merlin otty right but i can honestly say i'm not saying there weren't any black women role models in the 80s and 90s that is absolutely not correct so i'm not sitting here going where were you all but i'm just saying just just to say there was a dearth of of Mm. kind of black british female representation generally and also just like the positioning of black women is desirable or attractive i can't think of anyone and the people who were positioned that way were like halle berry you know Mm. or mel b or so like mixed race, yeah. light skin, kind of like their hair is kind of like fell like this. Mm. And I've got dreadlocks now, so I can do that too. But, but you know, I can do this. Well, you know, yeah. I, when I was a kid, um, there were so very few representations of black women in popular culture that I used to dream. This is the recurring dream that um, Dinah Ross, Mary Wells, you know, the, the Supremes, I would dream that one of them would come and uh, say there was my mum. And wow. come and click me and cross me or whatever. And, and you know... I used to think that could be my mother because I saw so few black women in my world. Hardly, well, none really, none. Mm. Even black men, I never saw any. Only there was one painter and decorator who was, um, his depot was in Shirley Children's home. And he used to um, take the bus, take about two or three buses from Brixham and reach work about half past seven in the morning. And sometimes I would see him walking down the road. And I remember uh, there were times when he said good morning to me or, I'm, I'm sure he did, but I had no idea what he was saying. So that's the only black man I saw when I was very, very small. Uh, but I saw no black women whatsoever. So the women that I did see, the black women that I did see, I kind of imagined that they were my mum. Yeah. So that's how powerful it can be. Really those representations. Um, and yeah, it, it, think about that's what we had. Now think about what a white person has. Like yeah, exactly. Everyone, <laughs> every, everyone. Yeah. Any if you if you want to have a white person to have a crush on, you've got that. If you want to have a white person to be maternal, you've got that. If you want an auntie, you've got that. Any kind of representation that somebody can have is is there, and it's really interesting. Like you asked me that question, I never thought about that before. Especially my situation was definitely not like yours, but um, I have an Indian mother and I grew up in a white area. So I never really had anyone in my household <laughs> to look up to. And my, bro- I, my brothers all hate me. I always talk about this. They must be sick of it. But their walls were plastered with p- pictures of white women. They didn't have any black women on their walls. So I, it was, I, was a, I was far too old as a person before I realised, oh, people are attracted to black women. It never, it never even occurred to me. Cause so when you went to school, did you feel as attractive as the white girls no, in your school? No, of course not. Of course not. And I think... It, so when you got to talk about boys and stuff, you felt kind of left out? You thought, oh... No, because yeah. this is the crazy thing. I didn't feel left out because I thought that was the natural order of things. I didn't... What, I, what I'm thinking now, I didn't have the words mm. or the lexicon or the education to think in those days. So I just thought, oh, he's, she's got a boyfriend. That's nice. I'm sure that's nice. 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, that guy fancies her. Oh, that must be nice for her. I didn't, but I didn't even think of it in a, oh, I feel really sad kind of way. It would be like, it would almost like, it would almost like being sad because you get wet for being in a swimming pool. I just mm. thought that's how things were. That And that is worse because when you feel negatively about something, someone can like shake you out and be like, don't be so stupid, you're gorgeous. But when you just, that's just how things are. Mm. People don't date black women. My dad didn't. Um, my dad didn't. My brothers didn't. My friends didn't. My male friends didn't. I would sometimes get teased a little bit by um, particularly like, um, I remember I used to this paper round and uh, I'll always remember this. And some some of, some of my brother's friends did a paper round, so we'd see each other mm-hmm. on our bikes. And there was a really cold day where I'd ridden past one of my brother's friends, um, you know, on our paper round. I didn't think anything of it. I just sort of, I was a bit shy, I guess. So I was a bit, when you're shy, you get embarrassed to see people. You just want to be anonymous, mm-hmm. right? So I was a bit bad to see him. And then in the evening, my brother said, oh, I heard you saw so-and-so. He said it was, well, he said when you saw you emerging from the fog it was like gorillas in the mist can you imagine so this is like a white boy saying to my brother you know it was like he wasn't even aware of how offensive that was i wasn't aware until i remembered it about Mm. a few years ago you know because you it's internalized Mm. and i don't think he i don't think the white boy was like oh she's black it's like gorillas in the mist but all the stuff is internalized you Mm. don't you don't mm. know that it's happening. So it was only, I get, I don't know what happened. I, I think I started to read more literature from black people because that's another thing too. I read a lot, but I didn't read a lot of black writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only started reading more black writers so I could take ownership of what I could read more. So it wasn't just me going to the school library. It was me kind of, it was like a gradual, oh, okay, something's quite wrong with the world. <laughs> uh, a realisation. Mm. And then when I went to university, I was blessed to go from I wasn't in a 100% white environment in London to be fair um, and particularly my secondary school but in university I was I found, I just found myself around lots of black people mm. and that was formative for me so you felt more comfortable massively and black yeah. people of all different kinds like you know I suddenly realised that my form of blackness wasn't the wrong kind it mm. was just a kind that's yeah. unique to my experience I think with me it's uh, more about esteem Yes. Where um, even when friends of mine, especially when I moved to Brixham, would say, Alex, this girl likes you, you know, you, you're going to step to her, you're going to say hello or whatever. I said, nah, she don't like me, man. Yeah. What's she going to like me for? Nah, man. She, nah, you're lying. You know, that's, that was my kind of approach because I just didn't believe that there was somebody else out there who would say, Alex Sweet is attractive and he's worth, you know, good company or whatever. I just didn't believe it because of the way I was raised. Well, I was basically raised to believe that I'm just worthless. So how do you get over that? How do you actually believe that you are actually, you know, worthy of somebody else's love? And so that was the biggest hurdle that I probably had to face in my life. How did you get over it? Was there something um, to Again, like you, a bit with the reading. Yeah. A bit with me spending time with Simeon in prison. Yeah. And him telling me about black history and um, the way black people are valued in history and what works they've done and what inventions they've made and whatever. So... My life as a kid, where I used to cheer Tarzan, you know, whenever Tarzan used to fight uh, a so-called um, savage or whatever, Tarzan would always used to win. I said, yeah, go on, Tarzan, kick him up, Tarzan, you know, kind of hating myself, really. And um, so I had to kind of cross that bridge and look at it from the, uh, the native's point of view. Ah, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. How, how is Tarzan beating up everybody in the jungle or in Africa, where he's meant to be, and no black man ever wins, you know. So 
I have to see myself as a black man that can win. Yeah. Can win, whether it's a fight, whether it's um, uh, the attention from a girl or a love interest. Or, you know, I have to fight for that and believe in that. Yeah. Also, something I learned is that white society just tells itself lies about itself all the time. And then once you start to see the propaganda, mm. then it's a lot easier just to laugh at it. Yeah. So what I do now, what I see, where I see that play out now is in disaster movies. <laughs> Whenever you watch a disaster movie, it's always some white heteronormative focal point that saves the day. Have you, did you, did you watch the Tomorrow Wars? Have you seen it yet? It's on Netflix. No. It's another disaster movie about the end of the world uh, with Chris Pratt in it. And basically he saves, he saves the day. But they always end, all these disaster movies end with a white man and a white woman and a child going we did it son yeah. and it's just laughable yeah. but now I can see that for what it is it's hilarious whereas before I'd kind of unlearned this stuff I'd be like oh my god that's the future you well, know they saved us again I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because Simeon he deconstructed King Kong for me mm. in prison and he said Alex you need to watch that film again I said why and he said Alex you have to notice that um, King Kong he eats all the native women all the women of colour he eats all of them and he comes across a white woman and he, he falls in love with her. Doesn't that tell you something? And my brain started to click. I thought, oh, yeah. And there's so many films like that. Yeah. That um, puts white women on this incredible pedestal where they're seen as ideal beauty or whatever. And where they're seen as not worthy. You know, where, you know, so King Kong can eat all these, um, uh, what do you call them, sacrifice, sacrificial women. Of that native island, wherever it may be. Well, what is food? It's disposable. You know, it's like exactly gonna, disposable, I'm not worth anything. I'm going to consume you. Yeah. You know, um, you can see it in films. I make a point when I'm watching films with my partner, going, "See, see the propaganda." Like, you see it in the most innocuous films. So, have you seen Yesterday with the the Beatles movie with um, that amazing, that brilliant Indian actor? I've forgotten his name. Anyway, uh, he's in love with a white woman, which is fine. Um, lots of people are. Um, <laughs> and uh, by, by the end, and he pretends to be. Um, Basically, he, he wakes up in a world where the Beatles doesn't exist, so he pretends he's written all the Beatles songs. Mm -hmm. That's the film. And he becomes a famous superstar. And at the end of the movie, he's playing a big concert at Wembley or something, and he dedicates this song to this white woman. And what he does is incredible. He's on stage singing this song, and the image of this white woman is behind him on a huge screen. <laughs> it's so you just see this big, beautiful... I mean, she's beautiful. She's big beautiful white face behind him and it's little Indian guy going you're amazing you're amazing and it's so um typical of mm. what you see in the movies and when you are I'm not saying by the way if you're a white woman you are not immune to self-esteem issues to any issues like that it's not like oh you know this white women have no problems in the world I'm not saying that but that depiction of the desirability of white mm. women and he gives up his, oh by the way he gives up his Beatles career for her as well so this guy gives up a, a career where he could make hundreds of millions of pounds mm. for that so that idea of you, you know she's worthy of all of this and it's amazing I'm like it's in this film this is a silly little Richard Curtis movie I remember the early seasons of Big Brother all the black women who appeared on that in those early seasons were um, described as scary and there's something behind that there's definitely something behind that why? Why are we so scary at times? It's like this um, white fear of the black men, which I wrote an essay about in um, an anthology called Safe, where um, there's an actual fear. We have it upstairs. You do? Yeah. Great. Carry on, sorry. <laughs> Great, it's fantastic to know. But I was writing about this, this um, unnatural fear to have for, the, for black men. It's like when I first went to Brixton and um, 
white women would cross the road purposefully to avoid me, even though I offered no threat. I wasn't even looking at them. They would clutch their purses closer to their chest or they would give a side eye and so on. You know, there's this unnatural fear that they had. And that's probably because that is what the society they was raising. They were, they were taught to fear us. Yeah. Just like in the Deep South where there was this fear going on. And what happened there? They lynched them. Yeah, they all the, because of that fear. The fear um, the deep with America it was we think you're going to take our women. Exactly, which is just bizarre. Let's think about this fear because this is how I think. This is how I think about it. All things being equal, if anyone is going to be scared of anything it's or us. anybody, it's us. Yeah. Think about everything yeah. that white people have ever done. So not just black people, but anyone who is considered to be a native population or anyone of colour. It's like, we should be clutching our purses. Yeah. You know, we should be clutching Absolutely. our own. You know, it was, it, we, it's, you know, it's that, especially in the kind of, in, in the times when you were a young person, it happens now, but like with like the National Front um, and the BNP mm. um, and yeah, like it doesn't make any sense. And that's when you realise how effective propaganda and yeah. society can be in making people, people corrosive. feel... It's corrosive, that's exactly the word. And how hard it is to unlearn that. Mm. Um, so, so to the point where now people are going to Big Brother you know, and going, yeah, oh, this exactly. is a aggressive person. And, and this like, is what? why the reaction to um, the black English players taking a knee was so extreme by some right-wing commentators. Mm. I mean, I think it was Peter Patel who said um, she doesn't mind if people boo that. I mean, when you think about it, Taking a knee is a respectful stance. It's a very respectful stance. We're not cursing anybody. We're not hailing anybody out. We're not disrespecting anybody. We're just taking the knee. You know, when you look on the origins of that, Colin Kaepernick, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, um, it was a soldier who said that um, in wars gone by, uh, American soldiers would take the knee in honour of a fallen brother or hero, or whatever. And so Kaepernick took the idea and took it to American football. And look what happened to him. Yeah. They destroyed his career, just like they tried to destroy Muhammad Ali's career when he made his dance. And so you think, my God, what can we do to protest? What can we do? We can't even take the knee without them getting offended. Well, we have to say Black Lives Matter. That's how basic it got. We've got to say, okay, you're not understanding what's happening in schools. You're not understanding what's happening in hospitals. Mm. You're not understanding what's happening in society and, and, and things like that. So let's just say Black Lives Matter. And they still find a yeah. reason to, to disagree with that. I think there are two things going on here. First of all, there is a, it's a severe, severe, severe lack of education. People are growing up in monocultures and they are lacking the information they even need to empathise with what, it, with what it is to be a black person in a white mm -hmm. society. So what we were talking about today about representations of black people, I think a lot of white people would be surprised about what it was like to grow up. Now, I would say there was a difference. Now, you can turn on the TV and see black people. You've got social media, so you can just follow black people and you yeah. just absorb black people with, you know, you can curate your content and your media in a way you couldn't do it, you know, when we were younger. But you couldn't do that when we were younger. And I think what that does to your brain is, um, like you said, corrosive. And people can't relate to that. But hopefully they do, they do things like listen to this podcast, they do things like read books and they empathise with it. The people who don't empathise with it, Boudini, they're like, what are you talking about? Um, you're a footballer, you earn 100 grand a week. Yeah. And that's just lack of empathy, lack of education. The second thing is they know exactly what they're doing. And they know the minute society gets better, their lives, which are based on privilege, get worse. Yes. So this is them doing that's everything the, within their power to protest against it. That's probably the fear coming in again. Yeah. Uh, adding on top of that. So, mind you, I don't think it will get worse. 
that is perceived that it will get worse if there's equality everywhere. So you have to wonder why they're so against this. Why they're so against it and they're trying to call it Marxist. I mean, I'm sure somebody, um, you know what? When I saw those marches last year, Fina, all over the world, New Zealand, India, everywhere, it was the greatest um, joint kind of uh, protest in history, without any doubt. Um, Fina, I cannot remember seeing any Marxist ideology, flags or banners, anything. I'm sure most of the people who went on those marches can't even spell Marxist or even read <laughs> his book or whatever. They don't know where he's And yet we're trying to steer the conversation, oh, they're Marxists, oh, they're Marxists. They're just trying to undermine a very basic fact. And they're trying, they're trying to say, if you support these people, you support a mass transformation of society, yeah. which is garbage. If you support these people, the only thing you support really is, is fairness. That's the only thing you support. And if there is any transformation to be had, it's for everyone's benefit. If you decolonize the curriculums, that's to everyone's benefit, okay? It's not just, you know, the funny thing about the whole decolonize the curriculum debate is that my curriculum is already decolonized. My children will learn everything they need to know. We've got yeah. a whole library of books upstairs. They're learning it now. Yeah. It, this is for you. Yeah, we this can make that choice. Yeah, you know, we, we are born yeah. with um, an understanding, or hopefully now we have an upborn and we raise our children with an understanding of who they are, where they come from, mm. the truth. They will, my kids will learn critical thought before a lot of other kids will know long division, you know, like because they need to be armed with that so they can yeah. process the world. But if you don't have that, no one's teaching you that, you're going to go out into the world and you're going to graduate into it and you're going to be very surprised and you are going to turn out, you know, you're going to be one of those people booing people doing sensible things. So th that is stuff that benefits everyone. It's, this is, believe it or not, this isn't just for our benefit. And I think mm. that's the message now that needs to um, kind of uh, filter through society. So, Fina, you think that is the next step after the tossing of Colston into a harbour? I, I think it is. I mean, yeah, well, for my part, I would try to write narratives that will... Um, because for me, statues were never important. Mm. Because when I walk around central London, it's very rare that I'm going to stick around for half an hour or so to read the inscription below a statue or figure. You know, um, but going to school, I do know about Queen Elizabeth I. I do know about the Armada. I do know about Henry VIII. I, I know about these things. Statues don't have to um, be there to inform me that these people lived and they did what they did. And so this is why, um, for my small effort or my small contribution, I feel um, it's not my duty, but I feel it's important to write those narratives about um, slave revolts in 1760s Jamaica or try to, try to um, highlight those hidden histories that are so glaring in the English curriculum right now. Very glaring in history. I mean, even in university level. Um, some of my colleagues at Manchester said to me, Alex, I didn't know about Chief Tacky and what you tried to achieve. This is before the 1791 Haitian Revolution. And I said, because it's been hidden. Yeah. The British, the, well, when I describe the British, I'm talking about the, um, the establishment here. Because you have to remember the working class Brits, you know, they, were, they had the same masters. And so they need to be educated too of what really took place you know, those owners of those cotton mills, wherever they were the same people who owned plantations out in the Caribbean. Mm. And so we need to revive these narratives and tell them from our own perspective. You know, what happened in Amritsar, what happened in, um, in Kenya with the Mau Mau and, you know, how many they castrated and killed and imprisoned. We need to tell those narratives. So when Boris Johnson says that it would be better if uh, they were still in charge, 
you know, he needs to be told how offensive that is. Yeah. He really does. And yeah. and the likes of Pretty Patel, Quasi Quartet, they need to be asked questions. Why you support this man who's telling you that um, your ancestors are not even worthy to govern themselves? Mm. They need to be asked those questions. Exactly. And, and that's one of the reasons why they hold on to the control of the curriculum so stringently. Because they know once people are crypt that information, yeah. what they say has no power at all because mm. it's easily it's easily rebuffed and refuted. So I do believe that education is is the next step. Yeah. And it is could be one of the final steps. Because once you fix that, this it's the, that's the foundations of your future behaviour. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the way you act as a kid is determining what you do as the, in the future for good. Everyone could change at any point in their life. But I'm saying if we speak to young people between, from the time they start school to the time they graduate in a way that is honest about mm. the world, in a way that is anti-racist and anti-anything bigoted mm. really, you'd be surprised at how cool they come out. Because yeah. that's what, once you educate yourself, you do come out to be quite a cool person. But having said that, I don't want to wait for the schools. And we, guess what? You no, don't can't need, afford to. You can't afford to. And you don't need to wait for the schools. I, I, was, I read something the other day that 1% of English literature texts for GCSE, only 1% are written by people who aren't white. Mm. But they are, white people are the global minority. <laughs> so what are they reading, right? Literally what are they mm. reading? But guess what? You don't just have to read the books that you read for GCSEs. You can read whatever bloody book you want. Right. So how do we instill a love of of reading outside of what you've got to read to pass the test? Starts from home, isn't it? Precisely. So this is where not everybody has children, obviously. Not everybody, not everybody with children has the time to do it. But boy, you better make the time because I can't wait. Mm. To, I can't afford to wait 20 years for the government to, right. to sort stuff out. I read another thing about how only a certain potential of, of, of a certain percentage, it was like 7% or something, I forget. So a certain percentage of books feature a non-white character. I'll take to my daughter's room, okay? Mm. About 90% of the books do. Guess what? Because they're independent publishers. They were mm. self-publishers, okay? Yeah. You cannot wait for Penguin, even though Penguin is doing great things. You can't wait for publishers to fix the world, okay? Mm. And we live in a democratised society now. Guess what? We can kind of fix our worlds ourselves. So that's what I like to talk about. Just like, great, this is all terrible. Yeah. What I'm... are you doing about it? Yeah, I mean, there was the uh, the, the Black Writers Guild that was um, created last year. And... Um, but I, but I really feel what's more important that we support our own business models, our own publishers and so on. I had um, a bit of a falling out. Oh, I, yeah. I love the tea. I love tea. Tell me more, tell me more. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, I didn't agree with that they had a, a black publisher on board. I thought it was a writer's guild, not a writer's and publisher's guild. So I kind of balked at that. And um, I felt a little bit that it was um, jumping on the George Floyd bandwagon. I felt that too, because um, I didn't hear um, the people who organised this thing talking about black deaths in custody in the UK. You know, I've been an activist for many, many years. I've um, written about um, the things that happen in police cells and whatever. And so I thought, you know, you've got to address what's happening here, not just being a reaction to um, George Floyd. And... um, also, I feel that it shouldn't be elitist in any way. It shouldn't just be a platform for where elite writers can just um, have their spaces so they can um, perform their works and read from their works and so on. It's got to be something um, for aspiring writers as well. That's just as important to me. And also, I'm a bit of a Garveyite. 
So I believe that um, we really need to encourage and help those um, small black publishers, independents that are emerging, like Knights of, there's um, Hope Road and so on. We need to give them more support because it's so hard for them to get their products into the shops and so on. We need to support them. And so I feel I'm not really into something that uh, is only going to better myself. As, um, I don't know, some people might call me an elite writer, but for me... That's no use to me. You know, if it's just for my benefit, what's the point? You know, we've got to help those um, who, um, you know, are first coming onto the scene and first entering the publishing situation rather than helping those who are already established. You know, I believe that one of their first events was um, Berlin Everisto. That's all fine and good, but... Um, she doesn't need it. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She doesn't need it. Other writers do. Other, You know, I started off with an independent, Hope Road. Um, or at the time they were called Black Hammer Books. It was owned by one Jamaican lady and that was it. That published Bricks and Rock, you know, after my almost 30 rejections. And I think that kind of journey is very important still. Mm. I think even Berndin herself started off with an independent, a, a very small independent. So we cannot just serve the elite or work with the elite publishers. We have to think about um, leaving some kind of legacy and have to try to build up the black publishing that is out there right now, trying their best to um, get their works out there. You've touched on something that I feel really passionately about, and that is black individual success that is often promoted as quote-unquote progress or evidence that we're getting better. The reality is is that uh, there are lots of highly visible and successful black people in this country. There's no mm-hmm. point denying it. More than you find in Australia yeah. or Germany or yeah. something like that. Yourself might be one of them, Alex, you mm-hmm. know. But, you know, the Stormzies, the footballers, yeah. the Premier League is like 40% black men. This is yeah, a bizarre yeah. um, over-representation of a, of a population. It doesn't even make any sense, okay? Mm. And it's because... And that, that actually can be argued to be because of racist reasons, because young black boys have been told you're going to be footballers and not doctors, mm-hmm. lawyers, scientists, whatever. But let's park that for a minute. There's a lot of us um, in this country who are in the, the top, let's say, top two, three percent of the country in terms of profile, mm. earnings, career. But it means nothing when it comes to the state of this country and what it means to be black in this country. So what I'm trying to say is the position of Bernadine Everesta, who I just I adore her writing. I can't tell you how in love with her writing I am. But her being able to exist and her being able to publish books and her excellence mm. means nothing. Um, doesn't make it easier for me to be a published author or anyone else who looks like me. And that's why I can't agree more with what you're saying. Like when you're in that position, you can't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, something I really feel really, it always annoys me when a black person's on the cover of Vogue. So what? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, fine, it's representation. But that's, it's like the most elite kind of representation. Yeah. So I would, as a nine-year-old, wouldn't look at a black woman Modern on Vogue and be like, I can be her. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, want to see a black person. Yeah, I want to see a black person in East EastEnders be the person of desire, desired, yeah. or whatever. Like that's probably a, a silly example. But the point I'm making is, we often celebrate these things, and we and it's worse now because it's very Instagrammable. So these kind of um, visions of success are, you know, you you put it on Instagram, you get a million likes, and it can influence people, and we think it's for the better. Uh, and it's very capitalistic too. So it's like, I'm an individual mm. and I'm very rich and I'm very wealthy and I'm very attractive and I'm black, so you can do it too. And it's like, that. what you're saying is, if I'm not there, it's my fault. And that's not how it works at all. If I'm yeah. not there, it's because the environment, oh, there's lots of reasons, but if we don't create an environment for that, for the opportunity to be there, 
um, then then it's not going to work. So I'm sad to hear that about the Writers Guild. Well, that's I... my own. It's my own particular position. I mean, I'm sure it can be of use to many writers out there, but it doesn't fit me. In mm. I feel it can't serve me for what I want to do and what the kind of legacy I want to leave. You know, I just feel uncomfortable with, with what stance they're adopting. Yeah. So it's just a personal thing. It's you know not to say that they're not doing it you know, things correctly or whatever. It's just my own Well, you have values stance. as to what you exactly. think a black, a black collector yeah. should do and it doesn't quite align with you. It doesn't mean that what they're doing is yeah. wrong. It just means your ambitions are slightly different. Yeah. Would you ever start up your own publishing, publishing house? Oh, uh, I thought about it. Um, if I'm in a more financial, uh, better position, then yeah. maybe I'll consider Buy the book, guys. Buy yeah. the book. <laughs> February 2022, but, um, buy the in book. In fact, it's funny you say that because um, last year I filmed my first little short. Right. And so I want to develop that kind of side of the business as in you wrote the script um, no somebody else wrote the script but i funded it i got the um the crew together and so on i produced it and okay. so on so it's something what's it called what's it called um i can't even bloody remember <laughs> <laughs> it's about um a is young it about, is it about a white woman no is that... <laughs> it's, it's about a young black woman being rejected because she's slim oh lovely marga she yeah. marga okay. yeah marga um i think that might be the title actually yeah, so I want to develop that kind of side of things where actually being charged because it's not too many um, black production companies out there, is there? When no, there's it, like Lenny Henry's got one. Um, and I know Steve's got one. Uh, I can't remember. Sorry, sorry, he just dropped Steve McQueen's name like it's nothing. <laughs> just like, oh, Steve, my mate Steve. Right, fair enough, carry on. Yeah, so, but, <laughs> we, but we need more. Yeah. Okay. We need Noted. More. So it's Noted. Something that I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got scripts that um, I'll go around the houses, and I want to be the person on the other side of the table reading other people's scripts. Exactly. <laughs> you know I mean, exactly. I want to be the one saying, "Actually, this, this is, is where we need to yeah. be." You know, and again, it's a Garveyite in me that we need to be in control of our own destiny. Mm. For so long, you know, whether it's writing books or you um, maybe uh, submitting your comedy scripts to somebody at the BBC or whoever, it's usually someone white at the end of the uh, at the other end of the table. So we need to um, think. Hang on a minute. Why is this the case? But Alex, when it's someone black. It might as well be a white person sometimes. Yeah, I've heard that said to <laughs> me know, before like... because they're so steeped in the white superiority thing that they think, oh, you know, they kind of think like they do anyway. So, or rather, they're they're trying to maximise the success of something getting made. They're not trying to they're not trying to be revolutionaries. So that what they're sometimes the feedback they're giving you isn't coming from a bad place. It's coming from I know what compromises you need to make yeah. to get it over the line. So you either make it and you get it over the line, or you don't, and I can't help you. So they it's that really complicated yeah. thing. It is, it's complicated, but we need to believe in our own product, mm. and we need to believe that we could sell that globally. Yeah, we know how popular we are, we know how good we are, we know how talented we are, and it takes me back to um, you know, obviously um, I was a teenager in the Lovers Rock era where it was self-contained. We didn't need nobody to telling us that um, this song is not going to hit the charts or this song is not going to make money or whatever. It did. And the only reason why it wasn't visible in the charts because the um, whoever collected the data for the top of the pops countdown or whatever would never go to these shops. Yeah, would never go to um, Brixton or Willesden or Birmingham or wherever it may be. Where you know because Carol Thompson and Janet, well Janet Kay was she was the one, but uh, an artist like Carol Thompson, she would tell tens of thousands of singles 
that were not represented in the top of the pop chart. Yeah. And so we proved we can do it. There is a support there. We just need to believe in ourselves that that bit more than create our own companies, create our own content yeah. and set it globally. And exactly, and stop waiting for white people's permission. Yes. You know, because ultimately, and this is my theory, um, and it's like a dark theory, but it's kind of like, if we are given a level playing field in which to compete, Mm-hmm. we'll probably win <laughs> okay because when you have to work harder you become better at what you do yes. it's not a genetic thing we're not genetically superior to anyone no one is but because we hustle 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 because we're made to hustle we have to and that is why <laughs> when every now and again you get a breakout bit of art that um that comes out that is kind of fully black owned and black produced it does amazing things everyone's shocked like why are you shocked you know like mm. it's just because they had to work harder to get to to get as good as they to get as good as they could to to be what they are and that's why it's so popular i'm thinking did you, did you, did you watch rocks on netflix that yeah. movie okay so that was written by a white person to be fair yeah. but that to me is that's a black movie the yeah. cast everything yeah. there's a reason why that film is as good a as it, it is ad lib as well exactly so coming from the talent of the actors exactly they didn't go to you know, whatever acting school you get yeah. your actors from these days. They didn't do any of that. They they went to the people and they got actors and they based them on their acting ability as opposed to whether or not, you know, their class or yeah. or, or their, their schooling or, or whatever. And it's, there's a reason why that's cre- that was creatively just one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Like it's, it's, and it's and maybe this film. is where the fear comes from, Athena, that they know we're just as good. Mm. Yeah. Just as good. And so maybe the fear, oh, if they're, you know, if it's a little table... Would there be opportunities for them? Exactly. Because in my, you know, years ago, um, I've, I've had many, um, many fights with the BBC trying to get stuff commissioned, especially my novels, um, Issa Rae Kalane. And we used to go to endless meetings, me with a script writer and uh, um, the potential director. And they were saying, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And you've got to, do, you know, they keep kind of putting hurdles in the way. And that became so frustrating because we knew it was a quality product. We knew it was um, it was a viable uh, project to uh, get greenlit and so on. But we just couldn't overcome that hurdle. This it almost like they would not allow us. Yeah. It's almost like they kind of just ticked the box for development, but didn't want to green light. And they invent reasons to say no. Yes. And then you watch TV the next day and you see something just the same, but it's a white thing. Yeah. And you think, why? That's so frustrating. A friend of mine who's a, who's a writer had the same issue with publishers. She tried to get a, a travelogue of... Um, this uh pub- of her traveling through Europe published and she's a she's a black Ghanaian woman and she couldn't get any publishers but then if you're a white person try and get a travelogue of you published going through Africa yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean people will be falling over themselves yeah. it, as it happens a couple of years ago Afropean was published mm. eventually yeah. uh, which is just but then now, now we've got that you couldn't possibly have another one <laughs> you know yeah. so it's, it's like the Sith yeah. <laughs> there can't be more than there one be more. breakthrough it's yeah it's re- and it's and it's frustrating because and i think that is why it's very it's always hard work being a black person particularly black creative in a, in a white world yeah, that's is. why it's very important to take holidays it's, Alex. it's quite wearing You've got to take holidays and um <laughs> funny enough this is why i really enjoy the um the writer's room that we had yes with uh with crompton and the previous one in um small acts because um you know it can be so wearing being a black creative in whatever industry you choose to um, be part of. Yeah. And I found publishing the same, you know, I thought, oh God. And it was so kind of nice to have minds like yourself in that room too, where we can share the load, if you like, to create this thing. And you can talk about certain things. Like yeah. I remember, so just just for people who won't know this, um, Alec, one of 
Alex, one of Alex's books was, was being developed by the BBC and I was lucky enough to get to write an episode of it and we had a writer's room and it was a very diverse writer's room which, yeah. is, which was brilliant um, and the great thing about having a diverse writer's room is you can say things and that's explain things I mean we had one conversation about uh, the appearance of one of your characters and in the book her appearance isn't described she's just described as Trinidadian I believe yeah. however in the script she was written as a light-skinned black mm. woman and we had a conversation about this yeah. and I just thought and I watched her have this conversation I thought this could never happen with white writers yeah. or if, if it was it would to just happen, be assumed wouldn't it yeah or if she it, would be it, a fair-skinned Trinidadian exactly but it was also if it was to happen white people would find that conversation really awkward mm. like they wouldn't be able to get to the nitty-gritty and be like and actually, actually what happened was you said oh there's no description of her and we were like Let's make a dark skinned and we're like cool she's dark skinned yeah end of conversation yeah. yeah if it was white if it was the you know if that was a white writer we would have gone up to the bloody ceo yeah. you know, they would have had some <laughs> debate about it but it was just yeah. because we understand immediately the significance of that decision mm. and we understand what that means and we understand why it might have become a, a light skin person without realizing mm. we could be like oh yeah okay let's not do that um and that's what happens when you put more than one black person in a room yeah that's what happens. You're not just put, sticking one black person to represent all black people. What you're doing is you're having real representation, which is uh, lovely. Um, this is going to be the longest podcast we've ever done. Normally, <laughs> it's literally normally half the length of this because it's you. I want to end on one okay. thing. Okay. So you spoke about Small Acts, yeah. uh, which we uh, which we thought, everyone thought Small Acts was brilliant, that series. And for people who don't know, and where have you been if you don't know, Alex had a, an episode which is about your childhood mm-hmm. and, and it ends as you start writing. Yeah, it ends. There's the park, but it ends with the typewriter guy, it doesn't does. it? And, the typewriter and, guy. Oh, and I wanted to ask you about <laughs> Simeon, so I might, I might ask you a question about him. So, the, obviously, you, you, did you watch the Lovers Rock episode? Yes, I did. I okay. know there's a lot of um, debate about that one. <laughs> Were parties really like that? Um, really? Come on. Like, there's a mo- dreads in a mosh pit. Yeah, that wasn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and every and every uh, blues or party kind of dance thing, but. But a lot of people complain about the uh, the attempted rape scene, mm. and uh, a lot of people come up to Alex. Why is that in there? You know, um, and I think we kind of um, we kind of stepped on people's idealistic kind of uh, memories of what blues dancers were actually like. And I have to add, ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the blues dancers and parties that I went to were fantastic. But on the other two percent, not so. Where girls did get offended and did get um, uh, abused or molested or whatever. I mean, it's 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 strange that people are so against that um, character. I think what there was against is that there was no comeuppance for that character. He was kind of left to um, hang around in a dance and so on. He wasn't kind of chased out. But it's um it's kind of ironic that in the last few months or so, a lot of stuff has emerged. Um, bad boys in Brixton and so on and they're getting their kind of um, dirty linen kind of um, spread in the public now with people going online and saying um, or speaking of their experiences, black women I'm, mm. I'm speaking about, it's speaking of their experiences um, about certain characters in um, not just Brixton but elsewhere too. So it did happen but not as um, not as maybe as it every kind of blues experience or what many people um, enjoyed. It was an enjoyable time. But I guess for drama, you need something. Yeah, like, so, I, didn't have, I didn't have a problem with that at all. I think that even now that you go to a house party or any party, you know, men will do inappropriate things to women. Yeah. That's unfortunately what yeah. happens in any in any context. There's not yeah. even a black thing. You can go to... You can go to um, 
I can't think of it over a white cloth. <laughs> yeah. You go anywhere, a weather spoons and a man and mine might be in the face. That's patriarchy. Yeah. I just thought the dancing. I was like, yeah. um, <laughs> I was it's, like, it's What's not something here? I really experienced. But I would say this though, I would say this. Um I think they wanted to merge the party with dancehall. Yes. Because around about the time, if you went to a shaka dance or um or a coxon dance, one of those big, big sound system dances, people would actually kind of um dance like that portrayed so they were trying to tell lots of stories they're trying to tell too one, many stories yeah, maybe. One thing, yeah but it's not to say that it didn't happen i mean who knows that there's a blues dance where um, that didn't happen but i guess most people's experience wasn't that of what was depicted in the small acts episode but the, i still enjoyed it the thing i learned was michael ward's character yeah putting on the jamaican accent and suddenly at the end going right love and i was like my mind was blown so my last question was many of us had be, to do that yeah, for real I, I mean when i used to go dancing i used to try to put on a, um, a little jamaican accent even though i'm raising the birds <laughs> You know, for clout, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were seen as too English, you were laughed at, yeah. You know, in fact, it used to be very, very funny because I had no idea how to dance when I first went, you know, to blues or whatever. And, um, you know, I would kind of smooch like kind of, um, I remember from my disco days at school, and so I used to kind of dance stiffly around in a circle with a girl of my choice kind of thing, you know, really kind of stiff. You know, I had no hip movements whatsoever. Guys, I'm seeing this right now. You don't have the honour of it, but it's interesting. It's, it's like a foxtrot. I had no and, um, and on my first few occasions, the girl would say, boy, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> and I would say in my um, fake Jamaican accent, we dancing. <laughs> Me crabbing. Me cr- in fact, that was a Brixton word. Crabbing. 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 I said, me crabbing. You don't like it? He said, no, what are you doing? Get away. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, that opened for me. Like, I, like, I'm 39. So, like, I didn't... By the time I was going out, it was sort of garage and jungle and mm. stuff. So, it's definitely a time... And I'm from North London, too. It's very much... It's not that it didn't happen in North London, but it's definitely... I associate house parties with South London. Mm. When I went to house parties, I used to go South. Maybe Tottenham, Edmonton, um, but generally South. So it opened my eyes to something I hadn't seen before. Which so was, you was born a little bit too late for Norwich and all those kind of clubs? Yeah. And, with me, it was Temple. And Hackney and All oh, Nations so, and all um, that. All, yeah, All Nations is a bit before me. Um, mm. But there, where was it? Where, where did we go in Hackney? Um, these be the four races club oh, Ocean. Cubies, Oceans, Oceans. and uh, uh, it's called something else when um, God I'm showing my age now it's called something else when I used to um, go up there because it used to be like um, we used to call it the police smile because we called it the police smile because from Brixton as soon as we crossed London Bridge the police were on you oh I've seen okay. you know so we had to um, sometimes throw away all our weed <laughs> <laughs> Right over the river. Which was, yeah, oh God, man. It was, <laughs> There's some really high it, ducks it, right it, in the it, 80s. It was tragic. It was tragic. We see the police approaching. We jump out, stop the car, jump out of the car, and just throw a weed into the river. <laughs> oh God, the amount of weed that must have been that river. Oh man, yeah. And then we had to rebuy our weed when we got there. So, you know, we're out of pocket. And so, if we wanted to, um, you know, get to know a girl and buy a drink, we had no money because. Just spend on weed. weed yeah. no buy more weed. So. No one says whales got stuck <laughs> in the tent. <laughs> and it's, I could talk all day. I've got to stop. This podcast is too long already. Um, but it's not enough. I'm going to have to have you back again. Yeah, okay. Um, It'll be a pleasure. Thank you for coming to keep my company. Um, I'm going to 
talk about your book. I do a little outro recording at the end of this. I'm going to talk about your book. I'm going to okay. read it. I'm thrilled. Um, it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you down. Thank, Thank you. you. And the planting was lovely. So <laughs> any future guests listening out there, the planties are fat and delicious. <laughs> That was the fantastic and amazing Alex Weithel. You know who he is, writer of so many young adult books. He has a new book coming out in February and I've got a pre-release copy. So I'll be reading that and telling you about it. But his new book is called Kamosha of the Caribbean. I'm excited about it. It's about pirates and heroic girls and um, it's going to reveal a lot about the past that we perhaps didn't already know but it's also going to be a heck of a lot of fun too so i can't wait to get stuck into it you can follow alex on twitter he's brixton bard and yeah just one of just an amazing creative really and a real honor to to know him and again thank you alex for coming to my yard i've been athena i'm a stand-up comedian writer and podcaster you can follow me on twitter instagram i've got a facebook page as well too though i don't update that very much if you like this podcast please subscribe all right someone wants me to finish up please subscribe like comment do whatever tell your friends about it that would be great appreciate you so much for listening and we'll catch up next time